You're listening to a podcast from Oasis Church Bath. To find out more about us, visit our website at www.oasisbath.org. So today we are continuing a series that we've been doing um, on we need to talk about dot dot dot. Um, and it's been really great so far. I think it's been some, some really interesting topics that we've looked at. And we're basically going to keep doing that because we sort of realised that basically we could just keep going forever because there are so many things that we do need to talk about. Um, but I guess the idea is that we are looking at things that perhaps the church doesn't normally look at or that things that are quite controversial, topics that you really want to wrestle with that maybe we've not been able to do before. And today's topic has actually been requested and suggested so, and we love that. So just keep, keep those coming. So if there are particular topics that you think I would really like us to, to think about that, then just chat to one of the leadership team, email us, come and um, speak to me. And we'd love to sort of make some space for that over the next few weeks and months. So to kick off what we're thinking about today, it was already on the screen, but a um, uh, little, little, uh, little story, little anecdote from my childhood. Uh, so I'd, pro- I'd probably say that um, my mum bought my brother and I up kind of in the church. So we went to church from being quite young and I've always got a memory of sort of going on a Sunday. Um, so I, I think it probably took me about, I was about 12, I think, when I went on a, a Christian camp, which lots of you sort of heard this story, had a similar kind of experience, but... Uh, went on this camp, had a really um, strong experience of God. And I'd say it was the first time that I really experienced the presence of God, that God was actually a, a thing that I could feel and experience. And so I sort of um, signed up, became a Christian, and I came back full of energy and loads of evangelical language about how I'd become a Christian. Now it was my job to save all of my friends in the world and everything else. And I think that my mum was really happy about this sort of newfound energy um, but also she struggled with maybe some of my language and also particularly around sort of saying I'd become a Christian because from my mum's perspective, I kind of already was. Um, and particularly then when I said that I wanted to, to be baptised, she struggled because she'd already baptised me as a baby. And she was like, she's also an Anglican vicar, so she'd baptised lots of babies and seen the benefit of that in the church and how it brought families in. And so that was something that we disagreed with and we had lots of discussions and debates on it. And I'd, I'd say most of our debates and discussions occurred around the dinner table because that was the time that we sort of consistently gathered as a family. And so conversations like this would, would often happen. And that may surprise you, but um, my mum and I, I'd say we're both fairly opinionated, independent, feisty, feminist type women. So we didn't hold back in these debates and discussions and sometimes they'd get fairly heated. And my dad and my brother, who don't share the faith that my mum and I have, would often sort of look on, um, sometimes with dismay, sometimes just with pure fear, um, and other times just would ignore us completely because my mum's cooking is amazing. And when she cooks for you, just you don't need to focus on anything else, really. But when I look back, um, what I love about those, what I loved about those times was the freedom that I had to really say what I thought. I didn't have to agree with my mum, and she didn't say when... Um, you know, she didn't have to agree with me either, that we we really said what we thought and there was that freedom to kind of discuss. And it's really sort of, um, I guess, shaped my understanding of disagreement and how to do it well. So I kind of want to use that that picture as a metaphor, if you like, a kind of framework today of how to explore maybe um, how to cope with disagreement or how to disagree well. Okay, so the first slide or first point, uh, we are family So this is such an important point to remember when we think about disagreement. Uh, Everyone you disagree with about anything is a child of God, precious, special, gifted, loved, cherished by the creator of the universe. And no matter who they are, what they've done, they are your family. And seeing them as family will change the way that you engage with them in conflict and disagreement. And that's often been a helpful um, 
sort of lens, I guess, through which to, to view people as I disagree with them, especially people who whistle in public and people who park in the middle of two spaces in the supermarket when there are clear lines to park in. Um, even people like that, God loves them and they're made in his image. And it's a really helpful thing for us to start with. And sometimes on a practical level, um, even just having that in your mind, like this person is a child of God, this person is made in God's image, this is, this is my, my family, sort of, it changes the way that you interact with that person. And I think maybe that's become harder in our digital age when we're constantly disagreeing on, on social media and some of the comments and things that I see in, in threads are just awful, like how people speak to each other and think that that's okay. And, and I think that people often speak to each other in a way online that they wouldn't if, if they were having that conversation face-to-face. -face. Sometimes it acts, it's almost like the keyboard and the screen act as like a barrier that, that stop you from seeing that person, from looking them in the eyes, from understanding that they're a person with feelings and experiences and a story. So, you know, uh, where you can, having those conversations face-to-face, -face, and if it is online, just remembering, you know, that person is family. And, you know, asking yourself, am I talking to them in a way um, that reflects that view? And there's also something really important here about inclusion. Inclusion is something we've looked at here, you know, a bunch of times. But actually, um, the annoying thing, which really winds me up about inclusion, is that you sort of you sort of have to include everyone, like everyone, even the people that you disagree with, in fact, especially the people that you disagree with. Um, there has to be a seat at the table for everyone, doesn't there? Um, especially people that maybe we don't, don't agree with. And so to include everyone, we even have to include the people who exclude others. And that's something that I think I find particularly difficult, but it's a reality of the kingdom of God. Uh, it's not our table. We don't get to decide who has a seat and we don't even really get to hand out the invites. That table belongs to Jesus and everybody has a seat and everybody is welcome. So we are family. Okay, next point. We all eat differently. Um, so one thing I notice about my family when I sit around the table with them is how everyone eats in a slightly different way and you might have a, a similar deal. So I notice that some people, for example, will eat their favourite thing on the plate first, you know, go kind of straight in. Some people save that favourite thing until right at the end. And some people somehow mathematically manage to calculate the exact amount of each element needed to create that final magical mouthful um, where everything at once goes in and that's your, la your last mouthful. So I don't know kind of what your, your deal is with that, but uh, what can we learn from it? Well, <laughs> uh, we need to be aware, don't we, of our own, um, our own experiences and journeys, where we've come from, uh, what's important to us, why we think what we think, why we might react to some things perhaps more than others. All of that comes from who we are and what our background is and some of the inherited worldviews that perhaps we've, we've kind of got. And what I mean by that is, you know, um, we're all essentially a product of our experiences and our upbringings in lots of different ways, not always, but those things help shape some of the views that we have. And again, certain experiences can mean that we, we react more strongly to certain things than we might with others. And being aware of that, sometimes that's all it takes just to help us in that moment go, oh, hang on, this is about that, and I know I'm going to jump in and react way more than I would normally um, because of a perhaps a particular experience. So know yourself is <laughs> really important. And there's a few things that we can do to help, help know ourselves better. So firstly, having good friendships is really key um, for me in this. Um, having people who can tell me when I'm being an idiot or when I've done something that was way out of line or when I've overstepped the mark or when I've said something that I shouldn't or when I'm massively overreacting or when I'm jumping in too soon, which is something that I always do. <laughs> um, and, you know, marriage is great for that. Um, but <laughs> there's also uh, friendships, families, loads of other relationships. You know, we need people who speak truth to us, the hard truths, the stuff that sometimes is hard and painful to hear. 
Um, so that's a good challenge. You know, who is there in your life that you know says, like, when, when you need challenging, when you're, um, yeah. And also that somebody can tell you what you're like in disagreement. That's quite an interesting question to ask a friend or a, um, a partner. You know, what am I like when, when we argue? Like, what, what could I do better? What could I do differently? And it's, it's yeah, there you go. That'll provide some interesting conversation over lunch, won't it? Um, we all need that. And, you know, actually, when we look in the Gospels, Jesus rebuked people very strongly on a number of occasions, particularly the people that were closest to him. You know, the disciples needed that rebuke and challenge to be able to grow and change. And we're the same. We need that, too. Some other tools that I'd recommend for self-awareness. So um, I don't know if has anybody ever done like a personality profile like Myers-Briggs or the Enneagram, Enneagram. I don't know how to say that. Yeah, quite a few of us. Great. Now, sometimes I think these things can be awful and they can make you feel boxed in or labelled. And so I think it's good to be sort of, you know, to have a, a critical view of them in some ways. But sometimes they're really helpful. So I found the Enneagram really helpful just in terms of um, understanding my personality type and why I might, again, react to certain things, why certain things are important to me. You know, why the chairs need to be symmetrical when I come in on a Sunday morning, you know, stuff like that. And actually understanding that um, is, is helpful then in understanding how I might interact with somebody who then moves a chair and leaves it there. And it's not symmetrical with the others and how I could potentially respond and overreact in that moment. But because I know myself, I can, I can just think things instead of, yeah, saying anything. <laughs> so, yeah. Personality profiles can be really good. And there's actually loads of free stuff online now. So some of them you have to pay for, but there are kind of quizzes and things that you could do which help you understand that. So I think that's something you can kind of explore online. But Myers-Briggs um, and, and Enneagram are sort of two that I'd kind of recommend doing. Also counselling therapy, really, really good. Um, I've had probably two or three different rounds of counselling at various points in my life. And I've just found that really, really key in helping me understand who I am and how the experiences that I've had have, have shaped me. Um, and, you know, sometimes we think, oh, um, you, you know, you can only have counselling if there's a certain thing or, you know, if, you're, if you have depression or something. But actually, I'd kind of recommend that everybody does counselling at some point just because it helps you. Um, and again, for me, it's been massively pivotal in sort of helping me understand who I am. And then there's sort of other methods people have, isn't there? So things like um, journaling, keeping a diary. Some people keep like a spiritual journal where they sort of write down what they think kind of God might be talking to them about. Um, time with God, that's pretty key. Uh, spiritual direction is another thing. So that's somebody that you can kind of meet with once every sort of month, six weeks, who will just ask you questions about your relationship with God in terms of you know, what God might be saying to you. And I find that really helpful. I've got a spiritual director that I see, yeah, once every sort of couple of months. And if you're interested in that or you want to know more about how to find one, come and chat to me at the end. And there's a, a couple of things I can recommend to you. Um, there's a, a theory I'm going to chuck up on the screen, which when you look at it is like, but actually I'll just explain sort of a couple of key things. So has anybody heard of this before? It's called the Jahari window. Yeah, a few people. Yeah, great. Um, yeah, <laughs> in particular people I'd expect to know about it. If you've ever done anything in terms of sort of people stuff or youth work, counselling therapy, this sort of comes up. So I'd, I kind of just try and sort of, have a look at it but basically the idea is that there are areas in our lives which are known to ourselves um, and known to others there are other areas that perhaps are known to others but not known to us so that would be where we would have things like blind spots so you've heard that phrase a lot it's something that you can't sort of see so um Lee's already heard this story but um 
my particular example of being um, alerted to perhaps one of my blind spots was uh, quite a while ago now, a few years. And I was a youth work student and it was at the time where um, I smoked quite a lot. And in the morning on the train station platform, back in the day when you could smoke on train station platforms, I was uh, stood talking to my friend Sam, who was also doing the degree and we were sort of off to Bristol to go and we were just chatting about um, what we'd been doing the, the, the evening before. And I, I asked Sam what she was up to and she was like, oh, you know, did this and went for a run and, and had a bit of time on the sunbed. And I was like, Ugh, the sunbed? And I was sort of dissing her for this because that was, you know, not my thing at that time. And why would you do that? And she was sort of explaining it. And I just, I was literally stood there with a cigarette in my hand and I went, why would you do anything that is proven to give you cancer? <laughs> and Sam just sort of looked at me and then looked at the cigarette in my hand and then looked back at me and then I realized and we both laughed and that was embarrassing <laughs> and a blind spot. And we all have them, like just things that for whatever reason we become um, blind to, we can't see. And so we desperately need others to point those things out to us, even though um, it is pretty painful or embarrassing at the time. And another thing to point out as well, that there are areas which are sort of totally unknown. So this theory would sort of say, the unknown self, where things that are actually hidden both to ourselves and to those around us. But actually what's amazing about knowing Jesus is that he knows that stuff. So even the stuff that we don't know and other people don't know, he does. Um, and he'll be working in all of that as well. So there's encouragement there that, you know, there's, there's lots um, that we can become aware of. And I think time with God and making space for God helps us become aware of some of those things. So again, some contemplative practices like just trying to be silent for a couple of minutes every day. Um, I've been trying to do that because when I get in here in the morning, like I'm overwhelmed sometimes with the stuff that there is to do. And I'm like, I could do this, I could do that. And I'm just like this little, I just go. And I'm trying when I get in that office to put a timer on for a minute where I just have to sit. I'm not allowed to do anything. I'm not allowed to look at my phone. I'm not allowed to turn on my laptop and look at emails. I just have to do it. I'm trying to sort of build up the time that I'm spending. Last week I got to like five minutes and then I think it was like the last 30 seconds and I was like, and I just broke and checked my emails, but I'm getting there. I'm trying to sort of get better at that. But I think just that can be a little way that you just try and build some reflection and contemplation into, into your day. Just get your phone out, set a timer for you know a minute and just see sort of how much you can go. Because I'm just, I talk way too much to God. I'm like, hi God, I've got all this list of things. I need to do this and this and this. And sometimes I feel like God's just, shh, shut up. So I think silence is like a good thing for me to, to practice. And I know that there have been moments of silence that have helped me understand more about myself and who I am. Okay, another thing about sort of being different is our experiences and our backgrounds. And I've sort of mentioned already, haven't I, about how sort of our worldviews maybe and our experiences have shaped those. But we also need to apply that to other people and be aware of that in them. So when you're disagreeing with someone, you know, really try to understand where it is they're coming from. You know, hear their story, get some context, ask questions like, you know, what do you think has formed that view in you? Or, um, you know, are there any particular life experiences that you think have sort of shaped that opinion? Um, and it sounds like a, a sort of a weird thing to ask somebody when you're in the middle of disagreement, but I just find understanding a little bit about, you know, where they're coming from and their story helps you just sort of communicate a bit better and helps you understand them. Um, I love this Stephen Covey quote, most people do not listen with the intent to understand, they listen with the intent to reply. And I can be so guilty of this. I'm like, I'm like waiting because they've got they've come up with this argument, but you just wait because I've got this better one and I'm just I can't wait to sort of say it. And I realise I'm not listening at all. I'm waiting to my for my chance to reply. And that's not that's not properly listening, is it? Um, so kind of listening and trying to listen to what they're saying and understanding why this person thinks that and where they're coming from um, is a much better place to start. Um, I remember as a youth work student, again, 
I did a placement in um, Ashfield Young Offenders Institute in, in Puckle Church, and it was um, a placement I did sort of once a week. I'd spend about three hours with the chaplaincy team, and it was a life-changing placement for me. It changed my views on a whole bunch of different things. And I remember sort of one day being told by the chaplain that we were visiting some inmates on reorientation, which is like a wing where um, prisoners are put either because they've committed a crime within prison or because they've been put there for their own protection. And I was told we were going to visit this 16-year-old lad who'd been convicted of abusing about three or four um, boys at sort of age five or six. And I just thought, I don't want to even look at this guy in the face. Like, how am I going to even look at him, let alone, you know, have a conversation with him and be nice to him? I just thought this is, you know, and I think the chaplain sort of sensed my disgust. And so, and he was quite, uh, you can imagine being a prison chaplain, you have to be quite sort of straight talking. So he was just like, come here. And he put me in this room next to the chaplaincy and then he went out and I was like, am I like in the, on the naughty step? Like, what, what have I done? And he came back in and he just dumped this file in front of me and it was like that. And he just said, read the first couple of pages of that. And uh, it, it broke my heart. It was, it was this guy's file and it was all the things that he'd been through, the abuse he'd suffered, the foster families he'd gone, um, you know, seven or eight different foster families before he was 10 years old. Um, the sort of medical treatment that he still needed because of the things that had been done to him. It was just horrific. And as I understood, as I read that, um, I, I still was horrified by what he'd done, of course, and, and I should be, but, but suddenly I kind of understood it a bit more and it gave me compassion and with that compassion came love and I was able to have that conversation um, and interact him with him in a really positive way that day. In fact, that day he then proceeded to kind of have a massive go at the chaplain because he was waiting for a Bible that the chaplain had promised him and he was swearing at him because he hadn't brought the Bible. <laughs> so yeah, that didn't go down as I thought it would. Um, but yeah, this idea of, um, of understanding someone's story, and again, there's another quote that will pop up in a sec, um, Mary Lee Kaunaki, there isn't anyone you couldn't love once you've heard their story. I don't know for you if there's been somebody that you've kind of thought you've got them, you know, you've kind of made your decisions about who they are and what you think about them, and then you hear something about their story, something about who they are, where they've come from, and suddenly you find yourself a little bit more able to have compassion and a little bit more able to understand, you know, why they think what they think. And for me, that's been really life-changing, actually, in a lot of different situations, just, you know, being able to understand someone's story um, and kind of with the, the compassion that comes with that, um, yeah the conversation becomes a little bit more productive and helpful. So thinking practically, you know, about how we can do this, I think obviously you can kind of ask people, but you can't always just be like, so what's your story? Um, you know, you have to kind of have that relationship and sort of get to that point, don't you? Um, so I think actually Jesus is a really good example to look at of a sort of couple of different ways that he did it. Um, and I think Jesus disagreed with people, and it's really important to remember that. Um, you know, he disagreed with the Pharisees who thought he was um, evil and a heretic. He disagreed with his disciples who misunderstood what he was there to do. And he even disagreed with his own family, didn't he? So, um, you know, it is a, a good example for us to look at. So I think firstly, Jesus knew people's stories, which is sort of linked into what we've kind of already said. You know, he talked to people about what they'd done. He often knew, didn't he, and mentioned that because it was relevant. Um, he, even in the parables that he told, he, he told stories about sheep to shepherds, seeds to farmers. He used things that people understood. And I think, again, that's something that we can try and do. Jesus also was a master questioner. So um, he often answered a, a question with a question. So uh, uh, lots of you know that I worked at Bath College for a couple of years before this. And I do this thing where if a student asked me a question that I didn't know the answer to, I'd just be like, what do you think? Let's see if you can find the answer to that 
imagine if the the Google could help you. And I just, when I didn't know, I'd kind of try and turn it back around on them and just ask them to go and find out the answer and pretend it was because I was a really good teacher when really it was just because I didn't know. <laughs> um, and that's a bad example. But there's something about kind of asking questions and how that naturally makes somebody kind of reflect and go and find the answer or um, think a little more. And I think questions, you know, Jesus very rarely answered a question with a, with a statement or, you know, it was normally that he asked the question back and cause kind of reflection and thinking in that person. And that's something that we can try and do as well. So I don't know about you, but if, so, if somebody, if I say something that I think, like in a, you know, if we're having a debate or an you know, dis disagreement, whatever, if someone attacks my point of view with a statement, then it naturally makes me just want to defend and dig my heels in even more. Whereas if somebody asks me a question, it kind of makes me go, mm, and then I think and I reflect. And so when you use statements, you perhaps sometimes close the conversation down and provoke somebody to defend. But when you ask a question, you make somebody reflect and you, you open up the conversation and it's a lot less confrontational than a sort of defensive, you know, an attacking statement, which can naturally make somebody, um, yeah, defend. Um, I'd also say another really important thing is about um, telling your stories you know, telling your experiences. Again, there's another quote that will pop up here. Um, so this is Leonard Ravenhill. A man with an experience, it doesn't need to be a man, it can be anyone, but that's just, this is the quote. A man with an experience of God is never at the mercy of a man with an argument. And that's why, you know, we talk about sort of the power of testimony, don't we, that we kind of tell our stories and the things that have happened to us because actually they have a lot more power sometimes than like a really meaty theological argument. Um, you know, that actually, when you say, well, this happened to me, no one can really argue with that um, because that's been your experience. So I think where you can in conversations, try to sort of tell your story. Um, and for Sarah and I in sort of explaining kind of our journey, that's been really key that we can, you know, we can kind of come up with loads of theological arguments about all those clobber passages and we can, you know, um, we can have a theological smackdown with, with whoever wants one. But actually, it's been much more powerful just to tell our story and talk about the experiences that we've had. Um, so try to do that in arguments. You know, why, if you are arguing a particular viewpoint, is there a story that you can you can sort of show, that you can tell that kind of almost evidences what you're saying, that's shown how it's been good and helpful in your life and, and why you think that? I think that's um, a really helpful thing. Um, and uh, a big guiding principle, I think, is about fruit as well. So sometimes asking people, and again, this has been a really key for me around sort of when I speak to people about the whole um, LGBT inclusion issue, I often ask people to consider the fruit and I think that's really key. So Jesus, didn't he, talked about kind of, you know, you'll know something by its fruit. And if, if something's a bad tree, it can't produce good fruit. And if it's a good tree, it can't produce bad fruit. And sometimes rather than sort of saying, you know, well, you, you shouldn't think that, asking people what the fruit of that viewpoint is. So, you know, what's the consequence of living out that particular view? Um, you know, even the whole sort of Brexit thing. I said I wasn't going to mention it, but I just have... Um, you know, what do you think the consequences are then of us leaving the European Union? Um, you can't can't tell where my view is on that. Um, but yeah, just asking that question, getting people to sort of explore the consequences maybe of their view is sometimes a more helpful thing to do than sort of just to, to yeah, criticise the view that they do hold. Okay, uh, next one. Some of us are new to the table. So I, and again, you probably figured this out already, I'm a big fan of food. I always have been. And uh, what I love now is pretty different, though, to kind of what I loved as a kid. So it's pretty rare now that for my dinner I have potato smiley faces and alphabet spaghetti. Although I say that, but I really love, like, kids' food, like kids' dinners. <laughs> like fish fingers, beans, just so good. Anyway, um, <laughs> but my tastes have changed a little bit. 
Um, and what I ate, what I eat now is different to what I, I ate then. And for all of us, we'll have sort of things, don't we, that we kind of develop taste for. And I think that's true in the spiritual life, isn't it? We grow, we develop, we change, we change our mind. And lots of us in here will be able to articulate experiences of, of changing our minds, you know, thinking things now that we never thought five years ago, ten years ago. That's good. That's growth. That's the spiritual life. Um, and it should be like that. Um, but again, it's just being aware that maybe where we are is not where other people are and that that's okay, and that the only reason we are where we are is because of the unique experience that we've had and maybe the people that have helped us get to that point. Um, and, you know, some of us might even be able to relate to that sort of big faith deconstruction experience. I know I kind of sort of, you know, maybe questioning a lot of what I was brought up to believe and then just being in chaos for a bit of like, well, what is, what do I believe? And then coming out the other side and having this kind of reformed view. And I think that's great, but obviously the, the problem with that is that sometimes you can then look back at other people that are still where you were and be a bit like, Ugh. They still think that, but I'm the enlightened one and I, I know the right theological viewpoint and oh, bless them, they're still back there. And actually that's really patronizing um, and it's, it's, there's something arrogant and it doesn't, it doesn't kind of feel like of God, does it? It's not loving, it's not gracious, it's not patient. Um, I love this Pete Rollins quote. He says, when we're judgmental of others' naive positions, we often demonstrate a profound amnesia concerning the journey we have taken. Our lack of grace only serves to insult the grace that was shown to us by others who helped us rethink our positions. I felt really challenged by that when I first read it because I think I was in that place of like, you know, kind of judging actually other people that maybe weren't sort of where I was. And I think it's really important to remember that actually um, I'd be horrified if, you know, I go back and think about some of the things that I used to think and some of the things that I used to do. But luckily people have loved me where I was in that journey and people have loved me up until this point. So we need to do the same. You know, people are not going to be where you are and you've got to love them where they are and trust that God will bring them to where they need to be. And that might be different to where you think um, that it is. And I think that's that's really challenging, particularly when some of those views are quite damaging or um, they can be quite triggery for us, can't they? Because they kind of take us back to that place that, that we were. But yeah, we've got to have grace. We've got to be patient with others and not forget the grace and the patience that was shown to us. Okay, so um, finally, others are watching. <laughs> this, this slide creeps me out a little bit. Um, <laughs> this is the point where somebody walks in and goes, what, what are you doing? What are you talking about? So others are watching. I mentioned earlier that when my mum and I were often having these heated debates around the dinner table that my poor brother and dad were sort of looking on. And I don't know, I haven't asked them, but I'm not sure sort of how um, watching those arguments kind of has shaped their view around God or church. I'm not, I'm not really sure. But I remember as a youth worker speaking to lots of young people who uh, would, wouldn't have anything to do with God or faith because of the way that, uh, that Christians treated each other. Um, you know, all you lot do is fight each other and, and judge people, you know, that kind of view sometimes that people have of Christians um, because we are known for disagreement and sadly we're known for not doing it particularly well I mean you know we've got kind of whole denominations founded on disagreement haven't we and it often gets in the news things like and um, the disagreements over women bishops over LGBT inclusion abortion uh, we often make it in the news for what we disagree with rather than you know what we agree with what we're what we're against rather than what we're for and it's just worth kind of thinking about that isn't it that people are watching so when you write something on Facebook and you attack somebody in a certain way people are watching and they align that behavior with who you identify as if you say you're a Christian people are going to think that's what Christians are like and you know sometimes there's too much pressure we put on ourselves around that it doesn't mean that we can't be real about stuff of course but you know people are watching what we're doing and we have a responsibility 
Um, Jesus in John 13, 35 said, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. It doesn't say if you think the same thing, if you finally sort out your theology on that issue, um, if you agree on, on everything, but if we love one another. Um, and that is how, that's when we have something interesting to say to the world, I think. Um, this picture uh, kind of went viral at the time. You might know the story behind it, you might not. So the two people that are embracing there are Libby Lane and Philip North. Libby Lane was the first uh, female bishop in the Church of England. And Philip North is another bishop in the Church of England who is adamantly opposed to the ordination of women. So he doesn't believe that women should be in leadership um, at all. And this was actually um, the sort of service where Libby Lane was, oh, I don't know Church of England speak, like inducted that's not right <laughs> that doesn't sound churchy enough ordained is it ordained we'll go with that yeah so where she, where she was kind of made a, a bishop and um they sort of did this thing where they, they all or the, the other bishops sort of pray for her now when you look at that embrace that's not a kind of awkward sidearm hug is it that is a proper that there's love in that hug um, even though, you know, I mean, Libby Lane, what must she think of that, of a viewpoint like that? You know, that actually this guy doesn't think she should even be in leadership, let alone be a bishop. Um, and, you know, likewise to Philip North, you know, he probably thinks that she's this, you know, hugely, huge heretic going against what scripture says. You know, they, they hugely disagree, but they look at that love. You can see it. You know, it's it's real. And I think, you know, that that image went viral and that story went um, you know, lots of people are kind of sharing it and talking about it. And I think that's when, again, the world has something, um, you know, to, to take note of. Because when we model disagreement well, I think it's it's interesting to people. And I think that's, you know, when we're at our most radical, what we have to say to the world, you know, when we love each other across these huge boundaries and divides, whether it's societal or theological, you know, whether it's about race or background, sexuality, age, whatever it is, you know, if we love each other, that's how people know that we're disciples of Jesus. So you might be sitting there, you might be going, oh yeah, this is great, Joe. Um, you know, everyone eats differently, everyone thinks different things. We should all just kind of let each other think what we want and just, you know, love people where they are. Um, even if they have really um, awful views, that means other people end up being discriminated against. So no, that's not what I'm saying. So there are still, um, there's still a point where we need to challenge others. And that's kind of what I just want to focus on quickly. So if I add something else into the mix with my sort of family meal metaphor, so if we skip a few years ahead, and quite a few, few years now, to a family meal now would probably involve my nephew and niece, Alex and Evie. And they are little, so around four and two. And meal times would tend to be a little bit noisier now, um, a little bit more food being projected across uh, the room. And if there were things like that happening, you know, if cutlery was getting banged, if food was getting thrown, if tantrums were happening, uh, would their parents challenge that? Of course they would. And so, yeah, there's a, there's a point where we need to, to challenge. And it's good to think about when we can do that. And that challenge and you know, to, to a viewpoint that somebody else holds, um, we need to sort of apply all the stuff that we've covered, you know, before. So actually listening, using questions, you know, trying to pick out some of those things, you know, trying to do that first and hold that that approach is really key. Um, this is a James Baldwin quote. We can disagree and still love each other unless your disagreement is rooted in my oppression and denial of my humanity and right to exist. It's quite a strong quote. Um, yeah, sometimes... We can see people, can't we, that have views that cause damage and cause harm. So um, the denial of climate change at the moment is leading to the irreversible destruction of our planet. 
uh, particular interpretations of scripture cause others to be discriminated and excluded. And there will be occasions where you've tried, you know, you've done it, you've, you've loved them, you've been patient, you've asked the questions, you've tried to get people to reflect and they just can't, won't, don't refuse, they're not ready, they don't want to go there. And sometimes I think it is right to walk away from those people, those places and those situations. Jesus does this funny thing in the Gospels where he sends the disciples out in twos. And it's, it happens, it's mentioned a few times, but you can read about it in Mark 6. And he tells the disciples that if they go somewhere and their message is not heard or it's rejected, that they should shake the dust off their feet and leave. So that's a bit weird. What does that mean? Well, that was like a massively Jewish thing to say. So when Jews would sort of go and um, visit other lands and come back, they would, um, because Jews have this big thing about things being clean and unclean, so the kind of Jewish lands being clean and outside being unclean. So um, they would literally shake the dust off their feet to almost kind of get rid of the co contaminated soil that wasn't sort of from their land. So it was kind of a way of sort of, it was, it's a bit like a modern version of saying, I'll wash my hands of you, you know, I'm, I'm kind of reject. I'm saying it's, that's up to you, you've made your, made your decision. So if you don't want to hear it, then I'm you know, kind of leaving you to it. Um, and I think sometimes, you know, we might need to be, we might need to do that. You know, we're not going to have that conversation again. Or, okay, we need to sort of leave it there. Or, um, I'm not going to be part of that. I'm going to walk away from that um, if it's damaging. And I think there's something really key here about abusive relationships, isn't there? And relationships that damage us and cause us harm. It's okay for us to walk away from those and, and not go back. And that's okay. Um, I want to look at a passage in um, Acts 15. It should sort of come up on the screen. And so it's Acts 15, 36 to 41. And it's about a particular disagreement um, between Paul and Barnabas, who were leaders of the early church and who were responsible for, I guess, the spreading of, of Christianity in the early days of the church. Amazing guys. And you can read all about um, the stories of some of the things that they did in the book of Acts. But I think this one is, is particularly important to draw on because there's a few things that we can apply when we think about disagreement. Okay, so this is starting from verse 36. So sometime later, Paul said to Barnabas, let us go back and visit the believers in all the towns where we preach the word of the Lord and see how they're doing. Barnabas wanted to take John, also called Mark, with them. But Paul did not think it wise to take him because they had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not continued with them in the work. They had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company. Barnabas took Mark and sailed for Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and left, commended by the believers to the grace of the Lord. He went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. So verse 39 is pretty striking, isn't it? They had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company. And I think it's really interesting the way that Luke, who is the writer of Acts, talks about this incident. He doesn't say, does he, who's right and who's wrong. Um, his writing of the incident is very impartial. And that makes me think, well, maybe there was nobody that was right and nobody that was wrong. Maybe they, maybe they both were. Maybe it was okay that they both went their separate ways and did different things. And when you look at kind of what they did, did God bless both of them? Yes. Did, was God with both of them? Yes. Um, and did God do amazing things through the different things that they both did? Yeah, absolutely. Sometimes it's okay to walk away and not to be a part of someone or something, someplace anymore. And I think that um, is a good example if the kind of leaders in the early church did it, then it's, it's got to be okay for us too. One of the things I love doing when I read Bible passages is looking at social science commentaries and they unpack a lot of the sort of sociological, like the context, the history, rather than just the language, because I think a lot of commentaries focus on the, the Greek means this, which I love as well, but sometimes just understanding why people say the things they say to each other in the Bible, so much of it is cultural. Um, and this quote I really liked, and I think it's actually more profound than it kind of means to be in some way. 
Um, so this is a social science commentary on the Book of Acts. Barnabas and John Mark retrace their steps and cover old ground while Paul and Silas strike out for new regions. Do you know what I mean? That's quite profound, isn't it, actually? <laughs> I think, you know, some people are kind of called to, to new things, to go out there and do something new. And actually, some people are called to stick around um, and that's okay. Both are callings from God. Both involve God going with them and doing things through them. And I think that's really important. Um, and I know, you know, for, for some of us here, it's, it's perhaps been hard when we've seen people that have left us as we've moved into um, joining Oasis. And it's just good to kind of acknowledge them, those people that have gone and blessed them and say, you know, they're part of something else now that God is blessing. And that's okay. And we might miss them, but... Um, you know, God's still with them just in the, in the same way that God's still with us. And we're both going to be blessed in the things that we're doing, which is really exciting. Um, I wouldn't, it wouldn't be a Joe Dolby preach if I didn't mention Rob Bell at some point. And um, <laughs> he wrote probably one of the best books I've read in the last couple of years called What is the Bible? I'd really recommend it. But there's a chapter at the end where he particularly writes about kind of, it's called a note on growing and changing. And there's a few things there about... Um, disagreement or you know that I just think it's just so helpful the way he writes is just is brilliant and so Sarah's just going to come up and just read a few of, of uh, yeah just a couple of sections from that and then we'll have some time to sort of chew on this a bit and discuss with each other so you can't take people where they don't want to go the thing that you are so happy to be freed from still works for some people they like it. It feels safe. It provides meaning and security. So when you challenge it and quote whoever you've been reading lately and ask the questions that open new doors for you, they do not find this energising. Some voices that you once listened to will no longer be helpful. In fact, some voices that once helped you, if you continue to listen to them, will hinder your growth. If you continue to listen to them as you get increasingly frustrated and angry, it is not their fault, it is yours. They are continuing to do and be who they have always been. It is you who has changed. It is your responsibility to stop listening to voices that hinder your ongoing growth and maturity. Bitterness is not your friend. It's easy to become cynical, focusing your energies on them and endlessly wondering why they aren't more evolved and what they are still stuck and why they are still stuck back there, repeating the same slogans and going through the same motions. If you are filled with pride over how free and intelligent and enlightened you are in comparison to their backward, antiquated ways, your new knowledge has simply made you arrogant. Watch your heart carefully, because if you aren't more compassionate and more kind and more understanding, then you haven't grown at all. For Jesus, the point is fruit. You'll know people by their fruit, by their life, by how they actually live in the world. Lots of people get excited about new ideas and then they shove these new understandings in other people's faces and become the very thing they despise. If a new idea or understanding or interpretation doesn't help transform you into the kind of person Jesus is calling us all to be, then it isn't worth much. Are you more forgiving than you were? Less judgmental, more present, more courageous, less worried and anxious, more free and loving. That's what's interesting, you being transformed. Remember that you are not alone. Never, ever forget this. 
especially if you've began to despair that you're the only one who sees it like this. You're not alone. You're listening to a podcast from Oasis Church Bath. To find out more about us, visit our website at www.oasisbath.org.